Welcome to 1991 Movie Rewind, a podcast where we watch and review every movie released in 1991, from the all-time greatest classics to the critically panned and everything in between. We will rediscover forgotten fan favorites and uncover hidden gems as we explore the depths of direct-to-video. Join us in our celebration of the fun, unique, and diverse films of this highly underrated year. This week, we watched Vegas in Space. Vegas in space, Captain Dan Tracy, played by Doris Fish, and his crew are being asked to go undercover on another planet to investigate the theft of important Gerlinium gems. However, the planet in question does not allow men, and so they are given pills to change their sex so they can infiltrate Vegas in space while posing as traveling showgirls from Earth. Screenplay by Doris Fish, Miss X, and Philip R. Ford, directed by Philip R. Ford, and premiered at the Castro Theater in San Francisco in October of 1991. I, I know you haven't seen this, but have you heard of this movie before? No. I hadn't either until I was formulating the list for this. Um, and it stood out as one that I was really interested in seeing. And yeah, when you said that this was like a drag movie, I was... Yeah, Very so interested in we it. made a short list of all of the movies that were from 1991 that appeared on USA Up All Night, because this is USA Up All Night month on the uh, on the podcast, and we were going through which ones were possibilities, and then you're like, well, what's Vegas in space? And I explain, yeah, it's a drag movie, um, campy drag movie. Mm. Like, okay, let's watch that. <laughs> yeah. And it's available on free for streaming? Then sure, yes, let's do it. I'm surprised that I haven't because I'm living there for a few years. I've just never seen it. And then they have done showings of it since then. Yeah. And it was, I know one of the drag queens that I know that's still there. She does this Her name is Peaches Christ. Mm-hmm. She does a midnight mass at a. Th- Sometimes she does it at the Castro, but there's another theater, the one that I used to go to. That I, don't, I think it's gone now. The Clay Theater. That's where I saw Showgirls. Okay. And I saw Teen Witch. And that's when. But those shows that Peaches Christ did. They would do little skits in between. Like, they would show the movie, but then they would stop the movie partway yeah. and do, like, a little skit. Like an MST3K type of a... Yeah, but they would, like, recreate a scene mm. from the movie on stage. Okay. With the drag queens on there. Got that it. Those are the only times that I've been to those Midnight Mass shows, and those were a lot of fun. And I know that... They did one for Vegas in Space, and it was like a 15-year reunion. Sure. Which, I mean, I wasn't there at that time. But I'm wondering... They probably did, like, you know, 
a 20 year and then 25 maybe even 30 year maybe a 30 yeah it's tough to say what was possible during pandemic times and yeah i've never been to i've never and then i've just looking up other stuff like the three drag queens i mean this is like well before my time living there <laughs> or even just because we were just it's like almost kids. before our time living yeah living in general because they st- like these three drag queens started this sluts a go go show, in you know like in late seventies, early eighties, mm-hmm. in San Francisco, and that's what. They were all like, "Let's make a movie," type of thing. <laughs> they were yeah. all like, "Hey, what about making a movie just for funsies?" So I think it's important to say that this movie. It's. It's not for everyone. No. <laughs> it, it, it was never, I don't think, I don't think it was ever meant to have mass appeal. It's meant for a very specific audience. And you either like it or you don't. Um, personally, I think learning about the movie was much more interesting than watching the movie itself. Yeah, but yeah, but while learning about it, it made me appreciate the movie yes. and like it yes, more. Definitely. Like if I watched, I wish there was like a behind the scenes documentary on the making of this that it, coincided with this movie. It, it might be on the trauma DVD. Okay. So, because this had a very long story to production, and we'll get into that in, in a little bit, but the end of it basically is that nobody else picked it up except for Troma, um, who is known for, you know, Toxic Crusader, Toxic Avenger, and, yeah. and um, Sergeant Kabuki Man, and all kinds of, like, varying degrees of independent, weird, quirky stuff that has its niche audience, niche, whatever, niche, however you want to pronounce that audience, this fits right in to that whole thing. And um, I- I'm glad that they did pick it up. And so, yeah, they-, they have released it on home video on VHS and DVD. And that's probably why it's available on Prime is because of their, you know, Troma probably has some sort of agreement with Amazon. And so, yeah, there, there may be something on the DVD. But even not, it, you know, there's a very good comprehensive blog written by the director, Philip Barford, that goes through a lot of the history of the uh, the production. I I think a lot of the problems I have with this movie, if we want to talk about like the actual criticisms of it, has to do with the fact that this was basically all shot between 1983 and 1986, and then it was you know six seven years of post production, and then it finally got released in 1991. Yeah. So. A lot of the. And also the other part of it is that this was clearly started without a finished script. They had an idea of what they wanted to do, but they didn't have an ending in mind. They didn't have, you know, a full structure of where the story is going to go. It's like, let's get our friends together and make something. Yeah. And that's not a bad thing, except for when you're trying to, you know, like someone like me who's outside of the scene watches the movie, it makes it tougher for me to get into it. Yeah, it's like they made this just for themselves and for the fans of their 
show that they do in Definitely. San Francisco. Yeah, this was like, this is clearly meant to have like I think these it was just like a personal Castro thing. and other areas in San Francisco, and I doubt they ever expected it to go farther than that. Yeah. Um, but I mean, you know, it does hurt the overall quality of the movie if you want to look at it from that critical standpoint, and that's not. It's not unique to independent filmmaking like this. I mean, we saw it with, like, company business where they went into the movie without a completed script and how lackluster that experience turned out to be. I think it's the same type of thing here. What saves this, I think, is just the vast variety of filmmaking techniques that that are employed in this movie. Yeah. And also just the visual overload is most if not all of the fun yeah so it's less about the spoken word i have a lot of problems with the spoken word aspect of this movie yeah because i <laughs> but the visual side is amazing oh yeah like visually i liked it and then i appreciated like the set design just for them doing stuff in their own apartments yeah. basically <laughs> yes and then in random warehouses and stuff across the city of San Francisco and then they just randomly would go to like Twin Peaks or whatever just to do like to that the one, one scene. exterior shot yeah and people just around were like what the hell's going on while they're filming it I mean the set uh, so the design that they did like the with the spaceship and like the scenery and the mountains and stuff that must have taken like a lot of time to do i like how like attention the miniatures, you mean? yeah the miniatures maybe maybe not i know that that was one of the last things that got shot it's a- just and I think... when you look at there's like a screenshot of it when you look at it it's just like the attention to detail but I think what <laughs> so I think one of the trivia tidbits is that Doris was able to buy that mostly intact from like a storefront window. Oh, so it was and already then just a, a landscape to make it look like a thing? Vegas and space oh, thing. Okay. Yeah. So she wasn't yeah handcrafting the mountains and everything. I think oh, a lot okay. Because I see like, like pre-built and then added like it's kind of the like the Beetlejuice like thing that. The model Ale- town. Yeah, the model town that Alec Baldwin made. That's what yeah. it looked like. I'm like, that's so meticulous. And, like, whoever did that spent so yeah. much time. Yeah. I think it had to have been pre-bought just because it goes so far from the normal aesthetic of the other so props. They, where it's they basically prob- just, yeah. you know, here's a sign handwritten to well, say. Yeah. You know, like, there's a lot of that type of stuff where just, here's, here's some pink fur draped on a door and there's our background. You know, there's a lot of that type of stuff that happens. But even that stuff, like, when they did, like, the throne room or whatever, Mm -hmm. like, all the drapery and stuff looked nice. Yes, for what it was. was? Yes. I mean, you can... It's obvious from the very, very start that it has virtually no budget. Yeah. And that's fine. Like, that's something that's very easy to accept and, 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 um... I don't even want to say overlook because it's not something you overlook. It's just something that becomes part of your viewpoint. I don't know how to explain it properly. It's it's not a negative because 
it's evident. You know, if it was something like company business and then they had like shoddy production design where you could see flaws in, in the backdrops or that, you know, you can see like terrible special effects, then that's a problem. But when it's this and you know how independent it is from the, the get go, you tend to appreciate scenes like what you're talking about, like the miniatures where there is more detail in there, you know, like you get surprised when there's more <laughs> than what you yeah. see. Like you almost expect there to be virtually nothing. And they're also trying to do that on purpose to a degree. It's not just because of necessity, but they're also trying to go for those really low-budget 1950s, 1960s sci-fi movies. That is the aesthetic that they're going for. They're trying yeah, to camp it up. To, yeah. And I think that's one of the things I really um, appreciate about this movie as well, is that it leans in hard to the campiness. It's unapologetic in terms of what it's trying to do. Um... Which is really more impressive considering it was basically made in the early 80s. It didn't get released until 1991, but in, in all essence, it was released, or it was basically made between 83 and 85, 86. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're really talking about a movie that was five to ten years prior to this, and, and it, I think it makes it much more culturally important because of that. Yeah, like this is one of the... I mean, because this movie comes out around the same time as, you know, like Paris. You have a lot of queer cinema coming up around, like, 1990. You see Paris is burning. And then you have something like Vegas in space that you can see how, even just watching, like, RuPaul's Drag Race, how that's inspired from these movies from, like, 30 years ago yeah and I think just like even watching Drag Race I'm thinking about this movie now because of just like the skits in movies that they have to do yeah the whole time I was watching this I was thinking oh it would be so fun to see a bunch of cast members of RuPaul's Drag Race come together and do something similar to this or remake or like re because I know is, they you know. recreate they do there was like a season where they did like John Waters movies mm -hmm. so I don't but I don't know I'm I don't know why I'm talking but I'm assuming RuPaul would know what Vegas in space is oh, almost definitely and would like reference I'm just like thinking would anyone like who would be a contestant on there would want to like reference any of this and because I there are contestants that have been on the show that reference like Paris is burning sure but I mean the show Dr RuPaul's Drag Race is kind of like from Paris is burning because you're doing the ballroom scene I mean this isn't ballroom at all it's just drag queens it's meant to be making like a movie it's like really from meant their to be retro drag. Yeah. yeah, their retro drag from the show that they usually do at the clubs that they played at during that time. Yeah, they're very mod, 1960s mod inspired with yeah. everything that they do. And the whole idea, like they, you know, a lot of the promo material that they talk about is that this is a futuristic sci fi movie uh, set in the 21st century, but 
they're pretending like it was made yeah, in the Yeah, like 1960s. from the 60s and 70s, yeah, like they're, they're Barbarella They're basically trying to pretend like this movie was made in the 1960s and it was discovered now type of yeah. thing. Um, so there's a lot of, you know, weirdness with that. I, I think I think it's important to talk about the whole RuPaul drag race side of things because it shows how far things have come culturally. Yeah, dealing with, like, drag in itself. Yeah. Like, uh, so, I mean, let's let's talk a little bit about someone like the... Because you're right, like, when Paris is Burning is coming out, there is something of a sea change in cultural awareness and acceptance of gay culture. Yeah. Which was really just starting to happen around then, 1990, 91. Yeah. It started to kind of happen a bit. Um, but in a but positive the, way. Yeah, because... so like, what I think all I'm trying to say is like, a lot of the movies that come out that are, I don't want to say taking advantage of it, but like, you know, um, supplementing it or being part of that change tend to have a message, tend to have, Mm -hmm. you know, a different, you know, you have your story, but you also have the overall cultural lesson to be learned Mm -hmm. on top of it all. You know, movies with the message. This. They just, it was like a bunch of friends that just wanted to have fun and make a movie together. Yes. And I think that makes it. It makes it more fun important. to watch them have fun. Yeah, and I, I think it makes it more important in a sense. Yeah. Because, again, it's unapologetic. It's basically saying, look, this is us. Take it or leave it. You yeah, know, like, as drag performers. Yeah, like, this is this is what we do. This is who we are. You know, if you don't like it, that's fine. Like, it's not meant for you. Whereas, you know, some of these other movies that we're going to be seeing, you know, like My Own Private Idaho or... Um, I mean, I'm thinking of, like, Soap Dish, where they kind of... Yeah, there's a lot of villainization of gay and trans people in some of these movies. Yeah, uh, there's a lot, yeah, in this, in the, (laughs) in the coming years, (laughs) up to, even now, just the villainization of, like, gay, trans, But when you have, like, gay-centric stories... Yeah. You know, they are trying, they're trying to show the redemption side and like, hey, look, we are valid and and worthwhile members of society. Like they're really leaning into that part of the message. Mm -hmm. And I think this is more important in a sense because it's basically saying, yeah, this is us. Yeah. The campiness that I like where, you know, well, we can't go on this planet as men. Mm -hmm. So we got to take this pill to become women. Yeah. And that's funny to me i don't it's like only women are allowed it's a very loose premise to get them into the drag scenario yeah and and i think it's also important to show that it's women who are pretending to be men who are taking this pill and becoming drag women yeah yes because you have you really you really have four crew members well two of them are well one of them is doris fish who the, the ringleader of this project yes. for all intents and purposes. Philip his... R. Ford put it together, but Doris was the, you know, the, the... mastermind. Yeah, and his real name is Philip Mills. Doris Fish is her drag name. I mean, yeah. their drag name. I don't know if they... But in the beginning, Doris Fish is 
in his male form. And then, you know, when they take the pill, he's in drag as Doris Fish. And then that well, goes... Yeah, the character's name is Tracy Daniels. The male version is Dan Tracy. Dan and then, Tracy. And then it becomes then Tracy, Tracy Daniels. Daniels. But yeah, yeah, Doris Fish is, yeah. The actress. Mm-hmm. And then there's another, the other, there's two women who are in the beginning dressed as men, but you can obviously, you can obviously tell that there's these women, they just mm-hmm. have like fake mustaches. Yeah. And, you know, the mustaches are off and they're just, you know, as drag women. Yeah, it's, it's Ramona Fisher and Lori Nasland. Um, Lori Nasland or the, is... Or the two is, women that dress up as women. And then yeah. you have, like, and then you Miss have, X. Well, you have the fourth crew member. The fourth crew member. Miss X was... X. No, she's the bag. She's the the antagonist of this. It's, it's a dual role. So, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, you have... You have Miss X playing Vel, Velcroford, which is kind of like a dual pun of a name because you have like Velcro and then mm-hmm. you're also trying to go for the Crawford implication. Yeah. Um, Velcroford, who is the Empress of Earth, who gives them the assignment and say that they have to do this thing and, you know, gives a little aside and like, oh, you're going to see somebody who looks exactly like me, Queen Veneer. Right. Um, once you arrive, don't worry about the similar appearance or whatever. And Queen Veneer is the, basically the cop of Vegas in space. Uh, but yeah, you do have a fourth crew member who does not make the trip. Uh, Lieutenant Dick Hunter, played by Timmy Spence. And he, uh, when they take the sex change pills, he overdoses and disappears. He evaporates. Yeah. So I, I think when, very early on in these early sequences, you get a nice little mix of bad effects. I'm trying to, I'm trying to yeah, say like in, in a positive way. If I watched, I wish I watched this movie when I was younger, because I I would probably be like enamored by it. But yeah, I mean, okay, it's very heavily inspired not only by those '50s and '60s sci-fi movies, but yeah. very clearly like 1960s Batman era. Yeah. Because it's very colorful. Almost everything is done on an angle. When you have, like, the earthquakes or the meteor showers coming through, they're all just, like, you know, jittering themselves. And yeah. And the camera shaking just to kind of give that illusion because they can't do anything different. It's that type of low-budget thing where, you know, oh, okay, well, let's just turn the camera sideways and have them walk up a building as Batman and Robin. It's It's that type of vibe that you're getting from this the whole time um but what i really like is that philip r ford is not afraid to go for any and all camera tricks he can possibly think of and really play with film and processing and editing because you know right from the start you see them do the sex change um pill transition and you have the cross dissolves with the primal effects and the the bad fade from one scene to another and you know like they're making like monkey noises as they go from right. men to women and all this kind of stuff uh but lieutenant dick hunter uh he dies <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's only three left but it's it's an interesting introduction to that 
Actually, the real introduction is the opening sequence where you have footage of an actual rocket launch and um, some neon lights of Vegas and whatnot over a really good song by Timmy Spence, the guy who played Lieutenant Dick Hunter. Yeah. I loved that opening theme song. That's probably in contention for best song of the year for me. Yeah, I like the music. Okay, so I like the music that was in this movie... And I know that there's a blog that the director did that is pretty much gives all the information about everything about what he did. Yeah. On the making of this movie, and it's and his extremely it. yeah, and it's extremely riveting. I don't know. I was like, I love this reading about this. And he has a bunch of YouTube videos and some yeah. stuff. And it shows, like, they did, um, just to make more money to release this movie, they would do benefit shows Mm -hmm. across San Francisco, being like, you know, but in some of the songs that they sang on stage, they have YouTube videos, were in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, some of it was lifted from their stage show. Yeah. I wish there was more of it, honestly, because, like, one of the taglines, or I really the only tagline that's listed on IMDb is, the first all-drag queen sci-fi musical ever. I wanted it to be more of a musical, and it's not. It's the opening song, and then you have yeah, I a wanted... musical interlude during the dream sequence part, and then you have a very quick bunching together of songs at the end. Yeah, I wanted more it. Vegas. I guess yes. I wanted the Vegas. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the problems of the limited budget and scope and not having a script, is that you don't get a way to plan these things out and plan your scenes ahead of time and, and understand what you, what, would be good for a cohesive story because it's a couple of individual people's rooms, and then you have this warehouse that was converted into a makeshift mall with basically a couple different vendor stalls. Yeah. And that's Vegas. Yeah. And you have a very, very... A lot of these scenes are extremely cramped. And it makes sense, you know, again, like the limitations, because they're shooting in people's apartments. They're not even... For the most part, they're shooting in people's apartments. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have the room to do a two-shot. You don't have a room... You know, you don't have the room to have multiple people on camera all the at the same time all the time yeah they're showing two people dancing in a corner yeah then they shoot another scene where two people are watching them yes and almost all of the dialogue is someone saying something and then you cut to someone else responding yeah but there's a little bit too much gap in between them and so it kind of you know like it needed to be a little bit more tight with the editing to make the conversation flow but you have those leads and you have those pauses before and after each sentence that kind of throws off the rhythm of the whole thing. And that's just because of the circumstances of what they had to film. So it's unfortunate, but yeah, it does kind of mean that, you know, if you had a finished script before you went in, you could plan for more musical breaks. You could say, okay, now this is where we could put this song. Mm-hmm. You know, if they're going undercover as go-go dancers, as, as you know, showgirls, 
then let's see that. Let's incorporate that into the story and, and have them, you know, listening in while they're dancing, you know, maybe do like a roaming dance around the the mall or something and, and have them listen in to what their people are saying and try to get clues to the theft, you know? There could be different circumstances that were put in. I think plot was secondary. Yeah, I mean, plot-wise, I was like, I don't even know what's going on. <laughs> but I think they're just... secondary for them, too. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, again, it's sort of a matter of what is important to you when you're watching a movie. I think if you go and watch the trailer for this thing, if you go and watch, um, again, on that blog, there's that 1986 uh, video teaser. Did you watch that? Mm-hmm. It's like a promo spot where they're basically trying to raise money again, sort of like a pre-Kickstarter type of a thing. Saying, yeah. Hey, here's this project that we're really excited about. Hopefully you'll be excited enough to help us invest and get this finished. Yeah, that's what they And then did. they show a nice extended trailer of the movie with that opening song that I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, that's how they, they were constantly just needing money for this movie at all times and they would get sometimes generous handouts and some of it was funded by shady operations whether it's prostitution or possible drug lords or whatever yes so they did what they could to make this happen but you know film is very expensive and again this is 1982 19 you know you don't it's have the eighties, yeah. You don't have the ability to do digital. They couldn't even do video cameras when they started this. Yeah, and the director was going to school at the time, and then he was also working like at a film. Yeah, type a of film lab to get film employee lab. discounts for some of this. Yeah, stuff. and he said the like that, but then he was fired fired from there, and that's where he was like, "Well, there goes my discount for all these like film equipment." Yeah. That he was using for the movie. And obviously some of the budget went towards drugs. Yes. But <laughs> films are expensive no matter what. Um, you know, I went to film school. I had to pay for my film processing out of pocket. And, and we did do actual film for virtually all of the projects that, that we did. Uh, 16mm and 8mm. And that is pricey. So when you're talking about a feature-length movie with multiple takes, multiple everything, and... and big productions and having to pay for these set pieces and costumes and all this other stuff and you know it, it's a big labor of love and it, and it shows but if you're watching it as a legitimate story it's just it's not there I, I think the other thing that was a bit surprising to me is that most of the jokes just don't land to me um I'll talk about this at the end. There was like, some, would you like, watch it again? Shade, like, there was shade being thrown, like, a little bit. Like, yeah, with their how... hair. It's like, your hair looks like that. It's kind of, like, pre... Yes. I mean, most of the jokes had to do with, like, room. superficial appearances and yeah. stuff like that, which is fine. That That's fine. I, I wonder if there might have been more in-jokes that we just don't know because we're not part of the San Francisco club scene of the 80s. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe there were some references that were thrown in that would have had the crowds howling. Yeah, they go way over our heads. That they're, yeah, within their group or just yeah. that time and culture. Yeah. 
Because that made can, sense to them. Because <laughs> things can change a lot. Yeah, I what, mean, after when we talk about just other stuff, like even when, like when you're watching SNL f- from 1975 to 80, whatever. Yes. A lot of that is not funny because I just don't get it. Yeah, I, I think... Um, and that's... Pr- that's exa- I mean... Exactly what I was thinking at the same time. is like, this is, this is, you know, 1980 to 1985 SNL. This is, this is Stripes. This is Animal House. Mm-hmm. You know, where... Uh, I don't like Animal House. I don't like Stripes. I think they're extremely boring and poorly paced, and they are just not funny. I like Stripes up to a certain point. I would have to watch it again, but I, I remember like the second half is just like, what the fuck is this? Well, because then um, it gets serious. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, where's the fun? But like Animal <laughs> when House. When I was younger. <laughs> Animal House, like sure, if I'm 60 years old, like, oh, I'm a zip. Okay, that's funny, I guess. But in context, when watching the whole movie, it's like, good God, this is boring as shit. I get the same vibe from this, in a sense, because this is I mean, early I was, 80s comedy. Yeah, I was amused by just the way that they were throwing shade, and you can just kind of see that they were laughing amongst themselves, and I was like, oh, that's cute that they're... I just thought it was cute that they were having fun with each other. Oh, for sure. But, but again, I like didn't, an yeah, I didn't get it. Yeah, I think but it's... But I'm like, watching them having fun was my entertainment, I guess. Yeah, I think it's it's really just watching the movie making was what my entertainment was. Yeah. Because the story and, and the script... Yeah, there is... is it... It's like... I mean, it, it ends... It gets to where they needed to get, because they were trying to find those jewels. I guess, for whatever reason. <laughs> yeah. it, like it, it, It's never explained why... They needed it in the first place. Well, I mean, it, it kind of was in a way, but also not. Because, okay, the, the jewels are important because it helps the rotation of the planet, I guess. Mm-hmm. But they're still on the planet, so what does it matter who has them? You know, like, no one left the planet with the jewels. They're still on the planet, so, like, what is, like, what is happening? And then it turns yeah. out, like, it's it's the, you know, the the person's assistant, uh, the empress's assistant that has them. And, like, so why was she stealing it, especially when she wasn't a real person at the end? Like, you know, it, none of it made sense. Uh, yeah, I was fine. like, I don't even know what's going on, but I'm still wanting to know what's going on. Yeah, like, I'm less concerned about the plot net making sense. I just wish yeah. it was funnier to me as an outsider. And, you know, most of the situations were the jokes. It wasn't that the words were the jokes. It was like, oh, look at the situation that we're in. Isn't this funny? But it's it's not. It's not, like, I don't know. There's so many times when they try to explain the space stuff, or they try to explain the science yeah. stuff. Yeah. And it's just a bunch of gobbledygook words, and that's not funny. It's just not. You know, like, I don't... Okay, like, the scene where they're talking about the color dial thing. It's like, explaining that, okay, we need this color dial because the atmosphere isn't good enough to hold color, so we have this dial, and it only works within a 10-mile radius or whatever like this, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, Doris is like, well, how does it work? 
why do we need to know? We don't need to know. I think maybe... And the explanation isn't like, funny. Right. <laughs> yeah. But I think... Well, it would have been funnier to I say, kn- oh, I don't know, I don't know, honey. Let's just, you know, just roll with it, all right? You yeah, because, but then the, I feel like they would be, like, breaking their character or something. I don't know. But, um... Yeah, I wasn't really... I think it was just, like, you know, the director was like, hey, I want to work in black and white, so let's just do black and white. I think it was someone else who wanted... It was either Doris or Miss X that wanted They were like, let's do a black and white. Yeah, like, again, as an homage to some of these classic film stars and and having this stuff. I liked the black and white scene. Yeah. I have no problem with that at all. It was just the explanation from color to black and Mm -hmm. white. I don't need the attempt at technical explanation. I think maybe they thought that they should explain to the audience because you're watching in color and then all of a sudden black and white and then it's color again and then people be like but why is it black and white i don't know maybe that's what they think they have to do some weird explanation for that maybe i just wish it was i wish it tried to be obviously funnier uh i don't know like i wonder Okay, we know that Doris and who else? I, I don't know who else was were in Slutsagogo. Was Miss X part of Slutsagogo? It was Doris. Or... Doris Fish, Tippy, and Miss X. Okay, Tippy as well. Um, like I don't know if they are actually like comedy queens, quote unquote, or you know, like they yeah, might have I been wish just could... song and dance queens who are yeah. trying to make a movie and doing the best they can with their comedic chops or limited, you know. Mm-hmm. They might not have had somebody that they knew to punch it up, which is fine. But, you know, what's there isn't for me in that way. That's all I'm saying. But there's so much visually right with this movie. Yeah. Okay. So my favorite scene is that dream sequence. Yes. I... I don't know if it's my favorite. Yeah, it probably is. Because it, it's extremely experimental. Yeah. it's It gave me Haosu vibes. It, it, it was very 60s dr- drug trip type of a thing. Yeah. Um, a lot of and then, like, when smash the, when cuts, that... cross cuts, absolves, a lot of weird imagery and, and you know, like pulsating the, zooms and stuff his, like that. Like um, Boonwell type. Yeah, Louis um, Boon, yeah. Boon, yeah. Yep. Or a Salvador Dali sequence in, yes. in Hitchcock and uh, Spellbound or something like that. Yes. Yeah, I, I think... Um, I, but that's what they wanted to go for. They wanted mm-hmm. to do a scene like that. And, and it works great. It, yeah. It's fantastic. And, and I love, again, the 60s Batman aesthetic of everything is tilted to the side. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and just like... It's okay to show the flaws of the set design and show where the ceiling starts and, and the yeah. drapes begin. Like, that's fine. Like, that's that adds to the appeal, in my opinion. That adds to the camp aspect of it. I, I really liked the way that they did the dissolve from color to black and white. You know, it was really interesting to see the, the behind-the-scenes explanation of that, where he just took two cameras, one with black and white film and one with color film, and just ran both at the same time. Mm. Because that was the easiest way to accomplish that effect. That's a really interesting way to approach it, I think. Um, and it worked out. And, and yeah, like the black and white stuff, you know, obviously you have a different way of um, utilizing camera work when you're doing that. 
all of the stuff that was in the we haven't even really talked about the individual characters at all but like princess angel's room tippy who plays princess angel i i loved the the hand-drawn black and white aesthetic of her furniture and all these yeah different things. and then it's just so many different they showed, visual interests yeah i liked princess just that character because i liked the I think she's the best actress of the The makeup bunch. and yeah. everything. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very creepy doll. Yeah, which is, I mean, she's like this robot that we see. Because she's, you see a part where We don't it's know like, she's a robot till the end, basically. Yeah. Well, like, you see a part where she's getting ready. Like, she's sitting at her vanity and she's, like, twisting her hand around. Like, she's putting her hand on like it's a robot hand. But isn't that, like, the last 20 minutes when they're about to do their routine? No, that was when she was getting ready. And then she's, like, picking Um, a face to put on. Oh, that's at the very beginning as well? Well, not in the beginning. When they show her, like, the very, like, first scene of her. That's what I'm saying. Like, the first scene of her is she comes in and says, let me give you a guided tour of Vegas. But there's a scene where she's getting ready. Okay. Where she's sitting at the vanity. Yeah. And you have the different heads. I thought that was at the end. Near the end. I thought that was like in the middle-ish. I don't know. (laughs) I just like... It wasn't the... But it's cool looking. Yeah. That's that's the important thing. And that reminded me of like um, Return to Oz with the heads that Mm. the queen had to choose. You know, whatever head she wanted to wear that day. That was similar to this where there's like different heads and then obviously you see like mannequin heads and then you see her real head on a pedestal and you see her like pick the well she's putting like the face onto her face like popcorn style yeah like in the movie popcorn right uh and then you see her put like her face on to get ready and then there's a point where like she's twisting her hand on there was a point where it was like she her hand was being twisted around like as if she was a robot and i was i knew she was a robot right then and there okay i I must maybe i missed that specific spot and i was typing notes or looking something else up um all of that type of stuff like like the heads i remember being like in the last third yeah and then i mean at the very end everyone knows that she's a robot like i don't know yeah at the very end there's a very long that's also yeah pacing is a problem at times i mean yeah and that has to do with the fact that there wasn't a finished script and so they just kind of added things like a chase scene and you know um yeah because they were like we we need some sort of suspense like let's do a fight slash chase scene or something Mm -hmm. and there's a scene where yeah she's basically cornered and then she falls down the stairs over and over again and you know they only have enough room in in the shooting yeah. location for like four steps and so they just shoot the same four steps you know yeah. ten and then different just times like her falling and then you see like a doll falling and then like the head falls off and blood tubes and stuff like yeah. that. yeah but yeah that that's when the whole big and and then the gems fall out of the inside of her head yeah. And so everything's good. But it just didn't make sense because Princess Angel was the assistant or the helper robot of Miss Ginger X, Quest's character, yeah, or, uh, yeah. Empress Nueva Gabor. 
So why why stealing them? Why steal the gems if you're working and the robot of the person I don't who know. owned them? I have no idea. Was, she thought it, they were pretty. I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, but yes, I agree. Princess Princess Angel's appearance was great. I think um, obviously Doris Fishes, and you have Lieutenant Debbie and Lieutenant Sheila, Ramona Fisher, and Laurie Nasland. Um, some of the ancillary characters were way too one tone for me. I wish there would have been a little bit more done with the makeup, other than just to make them solid tinted faces. Mm. You know, it's like pure blue, pure orange, pure green. I wish there would have been a little bit more interest and variance. Um, but apparently Doris did all of the makeup for everyone. Oh, okay. Like, before each day's shooting, <laughs> everyone appeared like barefaced and yeah, had mm-hmm. to spend hours putting everyone's makeup on and then they could start shooting yeah this like an all-day affair yeah and so i don't know maybe she didn't want to keep track of all these different facial features or you know um i don't know maybe some of the people who were in this movie weren't really drag performers themselves and didn't know how to do their own makeup or maybe yeah i think like controlling thing who knows but i mean you have the three you have Miss X, Tippy, and Doris. I think those were the three. But then they probably brought on friends who were drag queens, maybe. Or just their friends. And yeah. they're like, I'm going to put you in makeup. Yeah, it sounded like a lot of this was, you know, people who were... Like, Ramona Fisher, I think, was either roommates or yeah, neighbors of like, Miss X. Yeah, it was just like, hey, do you want to be in a movie? That we're gonna make. Yeah, and like Sandel Kincaid, I think was Miss X's girlfriend, is what I read. Mm. And that was, I guess, maybe possibly like a little bit of drama in that Miss X had a real girl as a girlfriend. Um, it, by the way, yeah, Doris Fish and, and Lori Naslander were married um, in order for Doris Fish to stay in the country since he is. Or she was from Australia, mm. started in drag in the early 70s in Sydney, Australia, came over, and then married Lori Nasland um, for green card. So, beard um, situation there. But yeah, some of some of that visual stuff I, I, with the, the facial tinting, I wish there was more. At least we got some positives in the costumes, like, you know... You have, like, the eyeball necklace for that one person. You have, like, the eyeball boobies for the other yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you that know, was funny. The dresses were all a little bit more interesting in how they incorporate space garb and whatnot into it. So even though the color of the dress tended to match the face and it was one tone, it was still a little bit more interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about some of the cast and crew. There's no awards to mention, of course, but... Uh, we we oh. <laughs> I, I there's a lot of names that I want to mention, but they n- virtually nobody did anything other than this. So we'll just run through a couple of names and their characters here and there. So we got Philip R. Ford, who was the director, and also played a person named Terrace. There's like a very brief cameo. I don't know if there's even any lines. I think he's in like the opening Vegas touring group. Mm-hmm. Um. 
he directed a short film called Roller Coaster to Hell while he was a student that got a little bit of prestige locally, uh, and that's what connected him to Doris Fish. Uh, Doris Fish had a, a minor role in, in that short film as well. And so they got connected and said, hey, let's make a movie together, basically. He is, you know, was part of um, helping, I don't know, I don't know if this is during this movie or not, but he was part of this Let's Go Go nightclub act in terms of, like, producing, directing it. I don't know if that was before the movie started. It was probably after, from, from what the information online indicates. And then he also helped uh, produce and direct a simply stunning the Doris Fish story in 2002, which was a stage show as well. He mostly does stage productions, uh, not so much the, the film stuff these days. Doris Fish, uh, we already mentioned her history there in Sydney, Australia, again, was in that short film, Roller Coaster to Hell for a scene, was in one episode of a TV show called Partners in Crime with Linda Carter and Lonnie Anderson, I had never heard of. Uh, a pornographic parody called Sex Wars, which is obviously spoofing Star Wars. It is an X-rated movie. Uh, and passed away before this movie was able to come out. Passed away on June 22nd, 1991 from complications of AIDS. A few weeks later, Tippy, who played Princess Angel, also passed away in August of 1991 from AIDS. So all of this time got very close to the finish line of being able to see this movie released and just didn't quite get there, yeah. unfortunately. I, I kind of wonder if this movie would have been released if they hadn't become sick because some of the financial backing came from those benefit shows um, to raise money for the illnesses of mm -hmm. Doris Fish. Mm -hmm. And especially like one specific benefactor from the the blog post, it sounded like there was one. Yeah, for Doris. Yeah. And so if those benefits hadn't happened, maybe this would still be in the can. I don't know. Or or it would have released, you know, ten years down the line. So um so that's that's the unfortunate end of Doris and there is a little title card at the end saying for Doris. Uh Miss X played Queen Veneer and Val Crowford, Empress of Earth. She was also in Sex Wars and also a, a thing called It Listens from the Radio, which was released in 2020. Again, a lot of these people don't have credits other than this. Uh, Ginger Quest played Empress Nueva Gabor, the person who had the Gerlinium jewels stolen. Ramona Fisher was Lieutenant Mike Shadows, Sh Sheila. Lori Nasland was Lieutenant Steve Dane slash Debbie. Lieutenant Dick Hunter did some of the music, was basically the musical director for Sluts A Go Go. Uh, that was played by Timmy Spence. He did the opening theme song. He has been in a couple of additional things like All About Evil, Virtue, and Beach Blanket Armageddon. Frida Lay played Jane the Computer slash La La Galaxy. You got Arturo Galster who played Noodles Nebula, who was uh, in that little... George Jetson's space car mm -hmm. thing, which yeah. was a really neat little effect that they did there. Um, Arturo played Doris in Simply Stunning the Doris Fish Story, and he was also in one episode of Nash Bridges. 
And then you have Winetta Whitehead was a character played by Sylvana Nova. She was like the, the lead vendor in the Vegas mall. You have Babs Velour played by Sand Sandel Kincaid. Tommy Pace made an appearance as Mrs. Velour. So you have a lot of people who are probably known in that um, space in San Francisco around that time. Uh, but not really known nationally until Trauma picked this up, probably, for the most part. But now we know their names, and I wanted to say some of them here, and then obviously if you're watching on YouTube, I'll have the visual representation of each of them as I said that. So that's the cast. Not much to say in terms of credits, because this was a pet project, and you know, a bunch of friends just banded together and, and made something happen. It got released to the, the masses. After October 1991, its little Castro Theater premiere, well, not little, <laughs> jam-packed premiere of the Castro Theater, it did eventually make its way to Sundance in 1992 to sold-out screenings. Yeah. It then traveled the festival circuit and went to like Cannes and, and Vienna and um, all these other different things, and that's when Troma was able to come through and pick it up, and then it got exposure on E, and then obviously we're talking about it because it made its way onto USA Up All Night yeah. as well. Yeah, and it just, it also went to Tokyo, Japan, where it became very well known. And on the blog post, they even post pictures of the director, Philip, and then Miss X with the host of Up All Night. They, they yeah. even have the... Uh, the little bumper the little segment. bumper for it just them introducing themselves in this movie for Vegas in space it's, it's really worth looking through honestly if you have any interest in this movie at all do look it up we will have the link on our website of course um, I'll also link to a, a vice.com article that talks about the importance of this movie and, and its yeah. place which I think is, is really important and you know like I said, I, just to add to what Vice said, I think it's, again, important because it doesn't try to be anything more than it is. You know, it, it is unapologetic, but not in a negative way. It's not, you know, it's basically just saying, hey, this is, this is another aspect of gay culture. This is another thing that exists in the world. And look at how much fun we're having. Yeah. And that's just as valid. For... And I think in San Francisco, what there's like a when I was looking up stuff on Doris Fish, there's a a Facebook page dedicated to her, and I think November, they named November second, I believe, as Doris Fish Day okay. in San, San Francisco, but I mean she did die in June, so, but I don't know, they did do that benefit. For the ailing Doris Fish on November 2nd, 1990. Okay. So I don't know if it was because of that. That could be. Yeah. And then in Golden Gate Park, there's a little area. It's like an AIDS plaque. It's all the people who have died of AIDS. And Doris Fish and Tippy are together okay. on a plaque in Golden Gate Park in San Francisco. Yeah, we don't know exactly when this movie is released. We just know it was October. Yeah. So we don't know the exact day of the premiere. I did try to look October up information 90, on it. October 90, yeah. But Even the, there's a, in that blog post that the director 
sent out, he puts the premiere date and it's him showing the long line of the Castro theater of like yeah. all the people wanting to see it. And the front of the movie theater marquee says like dates that other movies are showing. So it's yeah. probably in the first half of November or October, but that's as close as I know without trying to find some local like an actual date. Yeah. newspaper archives, which are not available very easily. If you know, let us know, because we can update our information and have it on the website as well. So we'll move on to true crime and pop culture. So, I guess we can do, like, last week, where we'll do another one number, just, you know, for our USA Up All Night month. Yeah. <laughs> and... I yeah, have another everywhere. one. Yeah, I think the, every single oh, commercial yeah. break had at least one nine hundred. Yeah, and I mean, there, there are a lot on YouTube, and they're all amusing. Last week was, I did one nine hundred fun mate, and this one, I'm just going down the line where I just did one nine hundred number commercials in 1991, mm-hmm. and the next one I'm gonna do is called one nine hundred pals. So it's one nine hundred seven eight six pals. The way we see it, the day is shot. You only have a few options left. You can continue to stare straight ahead at the tube. You can go to the refrigerator, or you can go to sleep. Or you can talk to the friendliest girls in the world. Talk to us. We're live, one-on-one live. When the day is shot and you only have a few options left, call one nine hundred seven eight six pals. We'd love to be your phone pal now and forever. Two ninety nine per minute. Call us eighteen or over. Turn that. So that one is two ninety nine per minute, which is cheaper. No, that's more expensive than the last one. I thought it was five ninety nine a minute. It, I think it was nine ninety nine just for the call. So this is cheaper. Two ninety nine a minute overall. I guess it depends on But what on if what you're the... on the, for like a half an hour? Well, then don't be. We had, <laughs> even for like five minutes. The best option, just don't call. You're paying like $15, $20 for like, you know. That's all five... of these. That's you calling the Six... new kids on the block line, too. That's also $3 <laughs> a minute. So. I know. I'm just saying like the first <laughs> one was probably the cheapest because I think it was just nine ninety nine for the full call. Maybe. But I thought there was also a per minute after that. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, whatever. That was a week ago. <laughs> back when we thought this but movie two... was going to be Deadly Desire and it turned out to be Vegas in Space because the streaming got messed up. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but some of these are just like... I feel like this is still more expensive because they, they're they usually two ninety nine the first minute and then it's like 99 cents or one ninety nine. Yeah. There was one that we were looking up down. that said it was... Um, Something like a 12-minute minimum for the call. Like, you were going to get charged for 12 minutes no matter what, and it was a $3 per minute call. But they had an instituted, like, yeah, minimum of 12 minutes, but two minutes. So you're paying, like... So you're paying a minimum $36. Yeah, so you're giving us $36 no matter what. at least. That's That's amazing to me. That was the first commercial that I had. I mean, this is, like, the beginning of... At least they're nice. At least they're the nicest girls on the phone. Yeah, call them because they're your pals. Today or forever. 
One of the two. I did, like, it. we'll put the commercial link on the website, but on the commercial, it says on the bottom, like, Earthquake Communications, Inc. or something. That's the name of the company. That's the name. I just, like, how, what like generic. Shake Your World or something. Well, yeah, it's like, what generic name is that? Earthquake, Inc. Yeah. It's, it's not encouraging. I don't know. Like, <laughs> Earthquake, yeah. I just, I thought that was hilarious on the bottom of it. And then, since we didn't have an exact date of the release of this movie, we looked at the TV guide that we have that's in the very beginning of October. This is only up until October 4th. But on October 3rd, Thursday... October 3rd, 1991, was the 29th anniversary of The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson, and that entire episode is on YouTube. Including, including commercials. commercials. Yeah. And the commercials were more interesting to me. I mean, there were some tidbits. If you've never seen Johnny Carson and stuff before, it's it's a good representation of what people like about him but, yeah i mean i've seen so many johnny carson compilations just from growing up that i've seen almost all of that stuff dozens of times yeah it's, it's nothing new and this is basically the year before he leaves yeah this is or a half year before so he leaves. i was thinking like so they do this every year is it a clip it's just a clip show it's a clip show every year but it, yeah but Prime it time. was but it was clips from throughout the 29 years because they showed yeah. stuff from like in his early like 60s yeah they had him singing and dancing with Pearl Bailey yeah but most of it's more recent stuff. more recent because then I was thinking like do they just I thought you know how they do anniversary shows they only show the best of clips for that year so I thought they would just show 1991 only no. But this was throughout the 29 years he was Johnny host. Carson was a massive deal back then. Oh, and so, yeah. I mean, yeah, people took any, you know, any access and excuse they could to celebrate him at that time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a primetime special and everything, an hour and a half long. So some of the highlights were with Roseanne Arnold, Albert Brooks, Julio Iglesias, Jay Leno, David Letterman, Eddie Murphy, Annie Potts, Robin Williams. These are all clips. These are not These people who showed up for the anniversary yeah. show, which is weird. I thought that's what it was. Yeah, I thought they'd like come to play like pay tribute. Yeah, that's or what I thought. Just do like re- new sketches or something, but no, it's it's just clips from the past with all of them. Yeah. Yeah. That surprised me. Yeah. Because it's just him. He does his monologue in the beginning, and then he's like, let's show a clip of whatever. Yeah. And then it shows the clip, and then the it'll go to commercial. all outdated jokes. Yeah, about, like, George... Mostly about, like, George Bush. Like, the for H.R. Bush. Like, but stuff that you like, had to have been watching the news the previous day to understand type yeah, of jokes. Yeah, it's... Like, which I mean, very specific humor for you know, very specific um, day of the week, or even just local 
politicians too. He was talking about like some governor of I forget. yeah, he's talking about like governor and, and whatever races and things like that too. So it's yeah, I mean it's during. If you were watching the news, then you got it. Yeah. But if you don't remember things from this is what when we were watching it, I was like, I'm I don't get any of this, and this takes me to like the SNL from the. 70s to the early 80s again where it's just like it's going over my head and I don't because people are laughing and cracking up and I'm like yeah. I don't even know what is funny I mean it's it's the same type of thing that we see in SNL like Weekend Update now or some of the jokes yeah. on the Daily Show where some of the references are going to be about what we know of these politicians behaviors or actions and if you aren't familiar with who like Mitch McConnell is or something like that then you're not going to get the joke Right. And it's so it's like, the same type of thing with politicians from 30 years ago. It's like a 10 year old now being old. like, I don't. Yeah, exactly. So that's, Unless they are really in the politics. But that but, wasn't most of the show. That was just, you know, just the normal. That was the monologue. monologue. But even just some of the. I mean, some. Some of the funny stuff that was happening in some of these skits. Like when. He, when he does uh, Shakespeare stuff, I'm like, I'm not laughing. I mean, I get the the idea behind the joke i get it but i'm just like why is this funny the only one the only skit that he did i thought was funny was when he was playing like a politician and mm-hmm. he'd be like i graduated from harvard and it was like burnt it's yeah, like he's hooked up to a lie detector test yeah and yeah. then it was like i went to harvard for two years and it was like burnt and it's like okay i barely graduated fourth grade and then it went by so it was yeah. just stuff like that was funny yeah that was a well-produced, like... And that was early 80s as well. So that's, like, like that's, stuff you see, like, even now at, you know, like, Second City, you know, with yeah. just improv. Yeah. Yeah, that was a solid sketch. And it wasn't specific to any person. He was trying to be a pretend politician to just sort of riff yeah. on the idea of crooked politicians in general. And, yeah, yeah. Um, I thought it was also interesting that we got the, the Jeff Daniels SNL promo where... You have Dana Carvey and Phil Hartman as Carson and Ed McMahon. Yeah. Straddling him. Because that was the episode where Jeff Daniels comes in and pretends to be Jay Leno. We watched that as part of the podcast. We watched that one with with the falling star. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And open the (laughs) fridge or whatever. One of of the better SNL episodes in the (laughs) one. So, So, like, some of the commercials we saw, a lot of them were for tv shows that we ta- we have talked about and yeah it was cool nbc self promotion yeah it was interesting to see actual clips of some of these shows that we hadn't because that's yeah because some of these shows i'm talking about and i never even like flesh and blood and then right. you know pacific station and sisters and, and then even some of these uh movies that we will see like shattered i'm, I'm shattered. excited yeah, i'm excited about shattered now <laughs> like i want to watch shattered now like right now i knew nothing about it but yeah, shattered with um, what's his face, the guy from Major League, and then Bob Hoskins. Yeah, and it's a psychological thriller, which yeah. is you know. And you got Frankie exactly and Johnny promo in there. And you got uh, Fisher King. What was the song that they put behind the Fisher King commercial? It's the set? song that they sing at the end of Fisher King. Is it okay? It's the I like New York in June, isn't it? No, it wasn't. It was like a pop song. It was very off-putting. Oh, then I don't know. It, it seemed out of place. It didn't fit the vibe of what Fisher King was. Yeah, it 
it makes Fisher King look like it's going to be a comedy. Yeah, because they focus on how good of a comedic performance Robin Williams has. Right. It's like, oh. If you're going to oh, go and see if that you're watching for this comedy, as a Carson fan, it, oh, I don't know. But, um, a lot of, there is a lot of commercials with people who are famous now. Well, not a lot of them. There were a few commercials that, the one with Dan... Dan Castellana. It was a Burger King commercial. That was a Burger King commercial. For like $60 breakfast sandwiches. 60 no, cents. Cent. <laughs> it was like $60. 60 <laughs> yeah, six, a lot of them. 60 cent breakfast 60 sandwiches. Breakfast. And I was like, why is he doing this? Because it, I mean, it was, was like this, a year into The Simpsons. I know. And then I was like, yeah, yeah thinking about that. I mean, he was doing the voice and Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead at the same time. Remember? Yeah. Remember? So, uh, yeah. I mean, I have the, the promo that we could just put on the website of the live primetime special. Cause it yeah, the was TV Guide ad. The TV Guide ad. Because it was on... They re-aired it October 4th, 5th, 15th, and 17th. Wow. So they just really wanted to, people really want to celebrate him that month. All right, so we'll move on to rankings and ratings. Uh, where on your one to five star scale are you going to put Vegas in space? This is going to be another controversial. Okay. <laughs> I'm giving this a three. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that controversial? I don't know, because it's not, it's not a good movie. If it's you, not. If you watch without knowing, I started to really like this movie the more I read about the making of the movie. Yeah. And it made me appreciate it more, and then I started, like, crying a little bit. Yeah, thinking about, yeah. Just thinking about, like, even just, like, the whole San Francisco of it, it just made me, like, really sad and miss everything. Yeah. So I'm giving it a three. (laughs) Okay. I'm not going as high. Um, I'm going to say it's a one and a half on my zero to four star scale, which I think is also maybe higher than what you might have expected. I don't know. It's yeah, it's it's not a good film, unfortunately. Like if you're looking at it on the surface with just what's there, but I mean, yes, looking into the making of the movie, learning more about its production and the people who are involved gets you more emotionally invested into it and makes you care about what you just saw which is probably true of a lot of movies but it it resonated more here because of you know the effort that philip r ford is taking to document and and archive as much information as he has about all this um it's it's a fascinating look to see that this movie basically took 10 years to get made and now you know it's still being found and discovered by people today every movie's worth watching once would you watch it again yeah i would want to i would for sure want to see this at like if it was playing at the castro or something again yeah i would only i think i would only want to watch it again if it's in one of those types of public theaters public theater settings where i can be with the crowd it's meant for yeah. And experiencing it with them to help me understand what I'm missing. Yeah. I think that's, you know, a very helpful vibe. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm, it's not un, unthinkable 
that some Chicago club would pick this up and show it. I would um, want so to go that, back yes, to San Francisco definitely. and watch it there. Oh, that would be, yeah, that would be, like, ideal conditions for sure. Yeah, if it was playing here somewhere and there was, like, a double feature, I would do, like, a Paris is Burning, then this, then 100%. I would love that. I don't know. Yep. I'll work at a movie theater just to do, like staff pick <laughs> and this will be and my pick yeah. yeah i mean there's something to say that music box couldn't do that here and then you know hopefully the community would come out yeah because i think this should she i mean it should be shown to it's meant more. for an audience yeah <laughs> it's meant for an audience uh but if you out there do want to watch vegas in space with an audience or not as of this recording in august 2022 it's available on Amazon Prime, digital rental, VHS, or DVD. As always, check your local listings. You can listen to us on all of your major podcasting platforms. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can email us at 1991moviewrewind at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and YouTube. Just search 1991moviewrewind or go to 1991moviewrewind.com for the full list of movies along with show notes and more. Next week, we're continuing our USA Up All Night adventure with the movie Sweet Poison. That's only available on VHS. So, um, we'll see you then.